Hello everyone, it's May 11th, 2021, so a lot of aerospace companies are being awarded lots of money. So why not do a quick review of who's getting what and why? And then the big story, SM15 had a successful 10km hop with a few anomalies, but that's the interesting stuff. So let's talk about it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 308 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So how about that splashdown? <laughs> Did anyone play splashdown bingo? No, I thought about trying to get one spun up, but I didn't. But yeah, Indian Ocean. That's where we like it. We like it in the ocean. So yeah, uh, that uh, Chinese rocket stage. So it came down in the Indian Ocean. I've read that it is close to the Maldives, but I don't mm. remember exactly where that is. And I haven't seen any pinpoint on a map That's, yet. Just I've mm. just heard Indian Ocean. Off the coast of East, off the eastern coast of Africa. The reentry footage that I saw were all from uh, uh, nations in uh, like Oman, Jordan, in the Middle East. And so I mm. think, so that, yeah, the Maldives isn't too far past africa and you know central asia and so don't they stick like straight down from india yeah 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 and so so i guess this would have been the arabian sea not the not the bay of bengal although is that yeah the whole the whole area is called the indian ocean uh west of australia right so so it's pretty much just like due south of the southern tip of india looks like that's where it came down so okay. cleared, well, somewhere near there yeah cleared africa a little better than i thought okay good <laughs> but still came at least on a map it looks like it came quite close to the maldives though <laughs> yeah so i'm kind of wondering how much of it made it back you know like in mm -hmm. what condition was this thing was when it splashed down yeah i suspect we're not going to find out <laughs> yeah it's probably not worth finding out really <laughs> if there are islands there i'm assuming that the ocean floor isn't too deep but but like uh, there's limited utility <laughs> in doing ocean recovery for that. So uh, UNC Willie in the chat right before the show pointed out that uh, SpaceX has now uh, flown 50% of their lifetime flights on uh, reused boosters. A and this milestone was actually hit a long time ago. It was before Crew 2 flight. Now, of course, there are some little fiddly definitions, but uh, it sounds like uh, this holds true even if you take the most conservative definition. So it doesn't matter how hmm. you account for reused Falcon Heavy boosters. Uh, and, you know, like it, it, hmm. it all comes down to like just launching reused boosters on Starlink over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we now have two boosters that have launched nine successful launches. One of them was just recovered. Uh, you know, it's just like it's it's crazy like yeah we're we're not there yet and but at least we haven't hit you know as far as we can tell we haven't hit the bottom of the bathtub curve like it's it's pretty cool yeah that's a good point about the the bathtub curve yeah yeah still looking strong each deployment yeah one of one of the nine nine successful recoveries crash on its 10th flight right and then uh today was yeah the the 10th the 10th successful launch and recovery. When I'm saying nine, I'm, I'm including the recovery there. So yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. 50% for the lifetime of the company. <laughs> hats, Very... hats off to SpaceX. <laughs> yeah. So. 
So, in the news, awards, awards, awards. So, I guess we just have a theme. Uh, there's been a lot of money, I guess you could say, being awarded to various uh, companies, uh, like aerospace companies and startups and whatnot. So, Dennis, you put together a whole list here of companies that are that have been awarded money by, I guess, various organizations, right? So, this is not just NASA, but this is like NASA um, and some mm-hmm. investors, private, government, whatever. Um, just a whole slew of stuff here i see so yeah yeah we were speculating what it is about this time of year that made them all suddenly come out around the same time um some of these had already like been like you know these companies had been selected earlier but only uh you know signed the contracts you know in the, in the past week or so mm-hmm. and um a lot of them did come from space news so maybe space it was just kind of a selection effect where space news was just really interested in reporting on these but yeah no, there's a whole slew of them and so i don't know sometimes they, they kind of trickle through these awards and then sometimes there's just a deluge of them all being <laughs> awarded at once and so maybe it's just a coincidence uh yeah and and it's, it's such it's such a mix not yeah not just who's giving the award but also what the concept is and so to head things off some of the most interesting ones i think ada space okay we had talked about these uh nasa tipping point contracts last year um, that there was like, I don't know, a good dozen or so, and they were touching on all sorts of different things that are going to be important for uh, next generation kind of spaceflight, you know, uh, proximity operations um, and, you know, cryogenic fuel management, for example, or what they you know, term CFM. And so Ada Space was one of these uh, uh, companies, the only small business um, was uh, how it was quoted. Uh, so I guess, you know, a lot of these other ones were kind of bigger, more established partners. But um, they had won uh, one of the NASA's uh, tipping point contracts. And so they just signed it. And so it's uh, $25 million. And um, it's going to be, yeah, again, about cryogenic uh, fluid management. And in particular, they're going to be uh, uh, sending their LOXSAT-1 mission, which is like a small, low-cost payload uh, to test, you know, different technologies related to storage and transfer of, you know, uh, cryogenic propellants. And um, this, uh, they're aiming to launch it late in 2023 uh, on a nine-month mission. And the target is going to be a Rocket Lab uh, Photon spacecraft. And so um, they're, you know, going to basically be doing, you know, in-orbit transfers. And so this is, you know, 2023, so that's before 2024, but I'm going to have to hope and pray that the uh, HLS uh, uh, Starship, Lunar Starship will uh, be doing their own. <laughs> uh, we'll figure that out before then. Otherwise, uh, we ain't hitting 2024 as our target. But yeah, so that, I think that's, you know, I mean, that's going to be really cool and exciting to watch, you know, both uh, SpaceX and Ada Space are, you know, working towards, you know, this technology. And then um, and then a few years later, in 2025, they plan to launch LOXSAT-2, which would be a full-scale operational fuel depot in space. And so uh, any uh, upper stages that use LOX and RP-1 could, you know, there could be multiple refuelings with LOXSAT-2. And so uh, the, the, the quote from the, the story I found was um, that they're uh, working with several launch providers to develop standardized interfaces, promote orbital refueling into mission profiles, and develop supply and demand projections for this new market. So basically, right, the idea is that, you know, if you want to have access to this depot in four years, you know, maybe kind of uh, think about standardizing interfaces and things like that um, so that we can, you know, lock set two can work for you, I guess. So mm-hmm. <laughs> really cool award. <laughs> That'll be really fun to see uh, fly. And then um, another really wild uh, 
uh, idea, but much, much earlier in the uh, TRL. But this is uh, this is an award that JPL received uh, from uh, NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts uh, Program. And so this one is, you know, again, it's kind of more really out there stuff. But basically, they received half a million dollars for their Lunar Crater Radio Telescope. And so this is something that they had already received uh, some development money for to kind of work out the concept. 125000 they've already uh, received. But this is just um, a wild idea. Um, it's been around for more than half a century since like the 50s and 60s. People have talked about putting, you know, a radio dish on the far side of the moon where you're going to basically be right because the moon's tightly locked to the Earth. It's far side is always aimed away at us and you're always going to be quiet from Earth uh, radio interference. And in fact, the only artificial interference I realize you're now going to get is from like uh, Chui Chow. And if uh, China puts any other yeah. satellites at that Lagrange point uh, to do uh, far side of the moon communications. But but yeah, so um, this is such a, a wild idea. You essentially, um, you, you, you in a single launch, right? You send your spacecraft to the far side of the moon. You you already, you already scout out which crater you want, so you can go and um, you know build your you know lunar crater radio, radio telescope, as you can imagine, right? This goes into a crater. And, and do they have a crater in mind? I mean, I know that it's likely to change, but like, do they even have a proposed crater to pick? I don't think they've selected a crater yet, but they know uh, what lunar latitudes they want to select it. Um, okay. Because of the type of, it's looking at a, the the twenty one centimeter uh, hydrogen line for mm -hmm. uh, basically neutral hydrogen gas in the early early universe. Um, it gets redshifted to such long wavelengths that you can't do this from the ground. The Earth's atmosphere will block it out, and so mm -hmm. they also don't want the the galaxy, the disk of the galaxy, uh, the Milky Way, to drown out your signal. And so depending on which um, mm. latitude you pick on the moon, you avoid most of the uh, the Milky Way disk. Because this is going to be like uh, Arecibo and FAST, where, you know, it's built into, you know, a sinkhole or like, you know, I mean, in this case, a crater. And so it's not going to be steerable. It'll, it'll have, you know, the little boom on top that maybe gives you a little bit of ability to kind of point a bit. But you're basically going to be aimed at the zenith or near the zenith the entire time and just letting, you know, not the rotation of the moon so much as the orbit of the moon then kind of sweep you over the sky. Yeah, so this is obviously pretty high concept, pretty far out there because we're talking about a one a one kilometer wide dish on the far side of the moon in a crater. And it looks just, I mean, it looks like Arecibo. Mm. So some people are going to have to build that. Oh, not people, robots. Uh, <laughs> okay, sure. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that's, I feel like it'd be more possible sooner to have like actual human beings put that together than robots because it just looks so difficult to do. Like it, it looks big and it looks complex, you know, like it's gonna be challenging. what's the projected timetable? I mean, like this is just, you know, preliminary research. Sure. But, you know, is there an idea of what point in the future we might see something like this? Because it just uh, looks pretty far out there. Good question. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I hadn't I don't know um, if they have uh, even bothered with that yet. But um, I mean, I, I, I kind of was just thinking in my head, you know, this would be something that's a, a next decade. At least, you know, what I mean, I don't think uh, we would build this, but maybe towards the end of the decade, depending on how technology goes, because because the robots they want to use to build it are also like being currently developed. And so it's, it's this is something that 10 or 20 years, I don't know, <laughs> try to try to put a nice big uh, Man, uh, window on. I that. don't know. I don't. I don't think this is that crazy, to be honest. Like nah. the the hardest part is going to be sinking the foundations um, and, and that I, I would expect that that's going to be difficult. Partially because, mm -hmm. you know, getting concrete to the moon's surface, you know, concrete mix and water is not, not easy. But, uh, you know, I'm, 
let's let's say they use uh dry uh pitons or pylons or something like that like that that seems really tough just having the material you know doing foundations on another planet is is rough and then like actually being able to sink them like you know we've seen some digging failures uh on other worlds in the past like, uh. that's a tough operation but like laying out cables like that's a that's a total like robot wheelhouse like mm. that that doesn't seem that hard depending on how the construction actually works like well because they're not they're not building towers right they're just securing everything at the lip of the crater and then pulling it taut is kind of what it yeah seems exactly like. so yeah so so let's let's talk about what they actually do and then we can really kind of weigh in on just uh i mean i feel like this is this is going to be before we have humans on mars you know what i mean but um i i still think uh it's it's if, if 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 dragonfly, well, actually, no, I guess I don't want to go down that road. Dragonfly is going to take so long <laughs> to tighten because it's so damn mm -hmm. far away. But you know, uh, but yeah, okay. So right, so, so so the way it works is the spacecraft needs to go find its crater that it wants, split into two, and then there's going to be a lander that contains uh, the mesh for the telescope itself and the guide cables, and that one needs to land at the center of the crater, right? Maybe use a little TRN to go and uh, make sure it kind of really sticks the landing very mm -hmm. nicely. And then it's going to be sitting there with, you know, it's uh, the antenna uh, packed in a origami uh, configuration and just waiting for the second half of the spacecraft, which is going to land outside the crater to go and deploy the do axle rovers. And so these are these ones, I know we talked about them on the show, JPL is developing them and they can either have, you know, all they can either be, you know, in their, I guess, roving configuration where they're just a four wheeled rover and then they can split in half. And the one half will basically anchor itself in place. And then the other half with its two wheels and a tether connecting them can go and basically repel down the side of cliffs and go into extreme environments and all that. And so that would be perfect for this. You know, you have it, you know, the one half anchor itself outside the crater. The other half goes down to the center of the crater, grabs these guide wires, and then, yeah, basically pulls them out, maybe sets up a little pulley or something so your cable doesn't go and get, you know, torn on the rim of the crater. And ultimately, yeah, unfold and pull out your you know, one kilometer wide dish in this, you know, three to five kilometer sized uh, crater. Yeah, that's, that's not, that's nothing, I don't know. It, it, I, I could imagine if, if we wanted to, you know, play this game, I could see 2031, 2032. That's, that's my guess. 10 years before we actually would, you know, be able to make this thing. And like, to be, to be fair, we haven't ever done like joint operations, like robotic joint operations. And, and this would require mm. what one rover in the center of the crater and then four on the rim is what the diagrams look like that's mm -hmm. not nothing and there's there's a lot of work being done now on like you know using machine learning and different like you know things under the umbrella of ai mm -hmm. just getting you know uh, uh, robots uh, you know whether it's you know rovers or satellites or whatever to just do basically very kind of um primitive coordination you know what i mean uh so that's kind of where we are now when you know with a lot of research that's being uh, churned out but um you know, I can imagine, yeah, in, well, in a handful of years, you get to the point where you can, you know, make this happen because it's going to, I don't know, I think it's kind of unclear whether or not you want to have operators and humans in the loop or have it be done fully autonomously. Yeah. That's something that is kind of they're agnostic to at this point. Well, but that, yeah, that's the thing is like, if you, if you have to, you could do this totally remote controlled. Like you don't, you don't need any operation just or any automation just conceptually. You could, you could do this entirely 
uh, mm-hmm. without automation. Mm-hmm. So it really, it just, to me, it just seems like a, a, a funding issue. <laughs> like actually <laughs> uh, getting this many uh, launches out to the moon is, is the hard part in my mind. That's kind of how I see most things. It's kind of like it can be done. It's just a matter of funding and, you know, but this looks to me to be so difficult that it would require a lot of funding um, unless, you know, it can actually be done for a lot less money and it's, you know, not as complex as it looks. But uh, just thinking of a one kilometer diameter dish like that's Mm -hmm. like wow and robots are going to build that (laughs) because i can't imagine people building that on the far side of the moon Uh, yeah on the far communications are a little we're gonna have to put something and you know park it next to trey chow to be able to relay (laughs) back to earth well i mean it it, at this point it doesn't really matter if you're sending this many rovers to the moon like yeah (laughs) communications (laughs) at that point will already be settled And, and don't don't forget that this is happening in in lunar gravity so like the actual physics of the construction mm-hmm. do get easier and they, they might not actually have to sink any foundations. You know, if you got a, a heavy enough rover that's far enough away and you, you know, use leverage properly, you might, you might get away with it. We're all kind of zooming in on the different parts that we think will be the limiting factor. For me, I think it's, it's the idea of having rovers that uh, will be able to reliably, you know, negotiate, you know, the side of craters and like move, you know, uh, in these extreme environments reliably enough that, you know, cause you got, you got to get all the wires pulled, you know, for this thing to work. You know what I mean? You, you really, you know, for it to work, they, the rovers have to do their job perfectly, essentially. So I think that's, that's the limiting one for me. From the diagram, I'm not sure what it is, but yeah, the, uh, the dish is some kind of a mesh. And so it comes in a pretty small looking little lander there. And then it's kind of pulled out kind of like mm-hmm. a sail might be yeah. so it's not as though you have to land a dish in, in like in a dish configuration or even like necessarily like fold it up it's kind of it looks more like it's kind of like bundled up you know what i mean there, that's the origami packing they're gonna do it basically looks kind of like a pinwheel that's folded in there tight and then when it gets pulled out it'll kind of unfold and yeah <laughs> it's pretty cool so obviously the reason you want to put this on the far side of the moon is because it always points away from earth and the moon is a really nice shield for RF radiation. But when it's that quiet, that's going to be an environment that we've never done radio telescopy from. What, do you think that we'll notice a difference between lunar day and lunar night? Does the sun put out enough radio static to make a difference? Good question. I, I don't think at these wavelengths, no. So these are like, I mean, mm. I'm not a radio astronomer, but these are kind of I, what I would refer to as stupidly long wavelengths like 10 to 50 <laughs> meters <laughs> and so um i, I mean wow yeah th- that that's the thing about the sun as a so i could tell you the sun's kind of just the fact that the sun's hot uh almost none of like the radio emission at this wavelength uh the longer the wavelength you get the less mm. uh intense the radiation is and then i don't know if anything in the sun's magnetic field or you know different parts of its outer atmosphere have any kind of, you know, emit strongly at these long wavelengths. Okay, so I think at this point we need to hit uh, the fast forward button on Dennis and just let him rip through these last ones or we're going to be here forever. (laughs) Copy that. And I promise I can do it. And so, you know, those are the two that kind of have like enough uh, right now engineering and, uh, you know, uh, on orbit things behind them that we really kind of want to dig deep on. But I still want to mention all these other awards just, you know, to, you know, give a shout out to the different uh, companies and Congratulations to them. And so uh, Loft Orbital uh, received a $1.5 million award from uh, 
Uh, well, half of it was awarded by Space Force, and the other half uh, was private uh, entities that um, matched it. And so this was an SBIR award, and it's uh, to do edge computing on spacecraft, which is something I uh, a term I wasn't familiar with. But essentially, this is uh, the the processors would be making uh, decisions uh, on board the spacecraft without having to take you know any data from the ground and receive any communication from the ground. So it'd be able to do a, you know even quicker you know processing and make quicker autonomous decisions on orbit. Uh, also, Northrop uh, received uh, uh, 13.3 millions to supply two uh, position navigation and timing payloads on uh, Blackjack satellites, uh, which are right these DARPA satellites um, that you know we've been mentioning here and there. Uh, basically, a, a Leo constellation of small sats uh, that will basically you know do the kind of things that DARPA wants you know satellites to do for the U.S. military to support them. And so these uh, these payloads don't uh, wouldn't rely on GPS. So you can imagine the kind of military value behind that. Um, Raytheon, uh, this is the biggest award by uh, uh, an order of magnitude, uh, received uh, $275 million to basically update NASA's Earth observation uh, IT system. This was uh, also, uh, or this was a website I wasn't familiar with, but it's actually pretty cool. I played around with it a bit. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, but essentially if you go to earthdata.nasa.gov, um, you can check out their uh, NASA's Earth Observing System Data and Information System, which is uh, okay. But uh, EOSDIS is that name, and it's 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 pretty cool. I mean, you, it sounds like if you really want to dive deep, you can get some like real useful data. Like I imagine, like you know, maybe companies would actually want to use this for you know, some of their you know products and business cases that they come up with. So it's the real deal. And then uh, Hughes and OneWeb uh, together received 3.4 million from the uh, Air Force Research Laboratory. Uh, basically, right, we know OneWeb, right, one of these uh, constellations, the one that was uh, revived from the dead uh, uh, a year or two ago. And uh, Hughes um, is basically doing their uh, their ground segment. This award particularly, though, is to give that kind of high throughput 24-7 Arctic uh, coverage of uh, the Arctic. And so, as you can imagine, that's something that, you know, um, having a, a high throughput coverage of that would be very useful for uh, the military and the government. It's only meant for experimentation at this point. Uh, technically, uh, someone else could still win this award if their LEO uh, satellite constellation uh, actually, you know, you know, wins uh, during like a later solicitation. And so, but at least this this is going to get uh, Hughes and OneWeb uh, together um, working on that. And it sounds like they're kind of the uh, foregone conclusion that they'll be uh, ultimately getting the, uh, the the overall contract to supply this sort of uh, satellite coverage for uh, communication coverage for uh, the U.S. military uh, in the Arctic. And then uh, finally, uh, to go overseas, I want to give a shout out to uh, ISAR Aerospace, which won uh, ESA's Boost Award. And so this was uh, $13 million. Um, they didn't technically get it yet, but it's kind of a formality. DLR selected them. And so what this was, was a competition with uh, two other rocket companies that are, you know, still kind of newish, uh, Rocket Factory, Augsburg, and High Impulse. And um, this uh, this is going to be a, 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 an award for ISAR's uh, two-stage Spectrum rocket. Um, to basically deliver two 150-kilogram uh, payloads over two flights for uh, the German government. And so their maiden flight is scheduled for next year, 2022. And um, you can still keep an eye out because this was this year's award, but there's going to be another ESA uh, boost award next year. And all three competitors are still in the game. And so maybe Rocket Factory, Augsburg, or High Impulse will end up being the winner uh, next year and get to you know fly something up there. 
And so, yeah. So just uh, like I said, I mean, that was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven awards uh, that uh, notable mm-hmm. that were uh, given or signed in the last week. And so. <laughs> so now we have to talk about what I guess a lot of people are talking about right now, yeah. um, which is uh, the successful mm-hmm. launch and landing of the SN15 Starship. It uh, it finally worked. <laughs> and it didn't blow up once it touched down because I was kind of waiting for that. So there were big changes slated for SN15 um, teased by Elon on Twitter uh, way back when. I don't know exactly what they what they did. I was trying to figure out because, you know, if he teased it back in November, it's a good six months later. Like, you know, ha- have we seen some more? So um, Space News and Tesla Roddy, I think both mentioned a couple of things. So, um, we know that they have an, uh, an enhanced avionics suite. Um, there is also, uh, more robust wiring, but that was upgraded back, uh, around SN10. So I, I don't think that that, uh, was included in these big changes. Um, I, I think probably one of the, the biggest changes possible is they updated the thrust puck or, or no, that, that was an SN910 update. Um, they, they updated the propellant architecture, um, in the aft skirt. I mean, you, you've got three engines, so that's not trivial. Um, but I don't know exactly what, what changes were made. I'm assuming that they were made to address, um, some of the explodey issues <laughs> that we've been having. <laughs> it sounds like they, the, uh, the Raptors might have been a, a refreshed version, but we also know that they, um, did an update, uh, back in, you know, SN10 era, um, a good five launches ago. Um, but for reference, these are Raptors 54, 66, and 61 that were installed. Um, and I thought it was interesting after the, um, uh, after the static fire, uh, they didn't have to change on any engines this time. It's not the first time that they've, uh, not had to make any changes, but it's good that they didn't have to do it this time. What, what is, uh, something that I'm looking forward to is, um, uh, Boca Chica Mary posted a photo of, um, some, uh, some future booster that's in construction that is positively covered in, uh, heat tiles, um, like TPS tiles. And uh, so that's, that's pretty cool. I don't know what the point is with 10 meter hop. So maybe that means that they're going to do a higher, they've got a, a real high altitude test planned coming up. Did you mean 10 kilometers? Cause you said 10 meter. Oh, 10 meters. <laughs> yeah. Well, makes even less <laughs> sense for 10 meters, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, the landing sequence, I mean it, it's it, it's straightforward. Like this is what we've seen attempted over and over and so it, you know, it's not nothing nothing super crazy. Um one thing though, the the video footage was real spotty on this one. Um so NASA Space Flight says that they did a three-engine uh ignition for the flip and then dropped one engine to go land on two engines. But the in the video footage, you can't see any moment with three engines lit up, as far as I can tell. It, well, it looked to me like it never lit, because I think that you did see the other two come on, right? So it's not like we, like, you know, came in during the burn. I think it was beforehand slightly. I might be misremembering, but... Oh, you're right. You can see two... You, you're you right. You actually do see two ignite, and that's it. One, two, and then the third one gets out of the way, and then it cuts to exterior footage. Yeah, we don't have exterior footage of the flip on their live stream. Just it's just, and it looks like it's a little a little choppy where we see 
half of the flip from the inside and then the exterior after the flip. So it seems like it might be a little a little unsynced. But from the interior footage, you can see two engines come on and then I do see some mm-hmm. rotation. So clearly, you know, oh, they yeah. came on, it rotated. That's when you would expect to see three lit up if they were going to light up three. Right. So, okay. And John, what's his name? John Innsbrucker, I think is his name. Innsbrucker. He said that they were playing two light three engines, then go down to two and if possible, just cut off that second one and then just land on one engine. But, you know, that didn't happen. And it looks like they did touch down on two engines, so they didn't go down to one. Yeah, NASA spaceflight, it says, All milestones were again achieved during flight before a three-engine flip and a two-engine landing safely touched SN15 back down on the landing pad. So that that's an unambiguous sentence. I thought I might have misread it, and they were talking about, you know, SN11 mm-hmm. uh, or something. Because in the previous sentence, they had talked about the fog bank. Uh, for SN11. So yeah, it sounds like NASA spaceflight got got something wrong, which is crazy. At at least we know that they landed on two engines, which is something that they'd kind of uh, talked about in the past. Um, And it doesn't look like they dropped one of the two engines to do the final touchdown on a single engine either. So um, interesting Mm -hmm. choices that we're seeing uh, made here. Oh, also, um, one of the one of the other tactics that we had heard about was when they were doing the flip, they were doing it so that one engine was on top um, so that one engine had the most uh, moment arm uh, during the flip. And now it looks like they put two on top and one on the bottom so that two have, you know, more uh, uh, more of a moment arm than than the third, but not as much as a single engine would have. So, you know, maybe they've just totally decided that they don't need three engines for that flip after all. Yeah, who knows? Okay, so they they landed and there was another fire. Um, it's pretty clear that there's fire at least under the skirt, like directly underneath it, but maybe also up inside that aft skirt, there, there might have been some flames. Um, and then you can also see fire spreading out across the concrete pad, which I'm assuming is... Um, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe liquid propellant hitting the, you know, methane, uh, hitting the ground and then rolling downhill. What, what the heck does flowing downhill, flowing downhill. <laughs> oh, <laughs> English. Um, it, yeah, this, I'm assuming that that's probably liquid methane spreading out and, and, uh, distributing the fire. Um, but the, uh, the fire suppression, uh, hose came on right away and there it's clearly, um, you know, being directed by a human because they uh, start spraying close to the uh, spaceship and they kind of drift off a little bit to adjust some of the spreading fire and then come back to the spaceship. And uh, I did some quick clicking through the timeline. It looks like uh, the fire hose was on for about five minutes before they shut it down. It also looks like that the Starship was meant to touch down much closer to the center of that concrete platform there, obviously, and it and it ended up right on the edge, right? Because it looks, from what I can see, that it's almost touching dirt, like it's almost at the edge of that pad. So they had to, you know, like rotate the hose because it was still pointing towards the center. But uh, it ended. But you know, the thing ended up touching down like right on the edge. I mean, I, I'd say one of those feet is like maybe five or four or five meters away from the edge. Like the the aft flap is absolutely off of the concrete pad. Yeah, that that was a lot closer. Thank you for pointing that out. So then, uh, before we talk about the future, um, there are also some really good photos from uh, Starship Gazer on Twitter of the uh, the landing legs. 
Um, they are slightly crushed, but it's not bad. I, I would say the, the bottom, uh, 10% was actually consumed and then maybe the bottom 20%, 20, 25. I'd say it's only like 20% of the bottom is actually damaged. Uh, so the top 80% of the leg is, uh, is still intact. Um, and th this crush core is, is really interesting because it's not like, um, um, sometimes you get like, uh, um, packing material where it's like corrugated cardboard that's been wrapped in a spiral to make a cylinder. Honeycomb crush core is what I'm thinking of, uh, which is what they use on um, Falcon 9 landing legs. So th this is a slightly different structure. Um, it's like uh, bent sheets of steel um, in, in sort of a star pattern. So it's corrugated, but it's just one layer of corrugation wrapped into a cylinder. So it's kind of the star shape. And then each face of the star has got um, circular holes cut in it and the holes are bigger at the bottom and smaller at the top, which, uh, gives you this nice, uh, gradation of stiffness. As those holes get smaller, there's more steel and less not steel. So it's more and more rigid as it goes up the leg. So, uh, I, I think that's a, a really wonderful, um, like solid state, programming almost like, you know, you can do that with hydraulics, uh, as you know, as the, or, or, uh, pneumatics as, as more pressure builds up, it gets harder to, to, uh, press more. But anyway, um, so they are slightly crushed, but it's, you know, it's, it's not bad. And then, uh, uh, Starship Gazer also included some photos of some burned, uh, insulation. So th these aren't the heat tiles. They're, uh, like the insulation blankets, uh, inside the skirt and kind of, kind of got toasty. So what's going to happen next? Um, SN15 is almost complete. It's, uh, almost done being, uh, being built, being born. Um, but Elon on Twitter said they may end up reflying SN15. Um, I can't imagine that SN15 is going to fly before SN16. I think they've got a lot of teardown work to do here. Uh, but it's, it's cool that our future may include, uh, a spaceship reflight, uh, not too far in the future. Why not? I mean, that's kind of what SpaceX does. I suppose it's a good idea just because if they can, you know, refurbish this thing and fly it again, why wouldn't you do that? You know, um, although, yeah, it might not be the next thing to fly, but, uh, they, they have a perfectly good starship or at the very least they plan on, you know, reusing the engines because that's something that Elon's right. talked about a lot because they keep, <laughs> because they keep on losing them and they're expensive. <laughs> he's pointed out. Yeah. And, and, you know, repeatability is, is such a big thing when you're doing data collection and flying the exact same vehicle a second time is going to tell you, uh, maybe even more than, than the first flight does. Okay, so we got four short and sweets this week, and what's the first one, Ben? Starliner nears its second test flight. NASA and Boeing have targeted a date of July 30th for the second uncrewed test flight of the CST-100 Starliner. This launch date would allow the spacecraft to dock with station the following day. Starliner has already undergone an integrated mission dress rehearsal using a simulator at a Boeing facility. Boeing has also completed all of the recommended actions submitted after the failure of the first Starliner OFT mission in 2019, though these actions are still under review and pending closure by NASA. Next up, European Space Agency to launch Orbital Debris Tracking Telescope. ESA plans to launch an orbiting telescope to be the first of its kind, specifically tasked to monitor space debris as small as a few millimeters across, beyond the range of ground-based tracking distance. 
the telescope would have a 20 centimeter or 8 inch wide aperture in orbit at 600 to 700 kilometers or 370 to 430 miles. In addition to providing the first ever tracking of millimeter sized debris, another benefit of the spacecraft would be to validate space debris models, which currently diverge in their predictions of the distribution of small debris fragments. With the agency aiming to have the telescope on orbit in 2025, a key next step is receiving funding approval at the 2022 Council of ESA Member States. Very, very cool. I like that. Next up, Firefly has a successful funding round. Firefly Aerospace has raised $75 million in a Series A funding round and is still on track for a series of commercial launches starting later this year. The Series A round was led by DADA, or DADA, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, which is a holding company, along with the participation of several other investors. Firefly CEO Tom Markuzic said the initial goal was to raise $350 million for development of a larger medium-class launch vehicle over the next five years, but the company decided to split the funding into two separate rounds in an effort to prevent dilution of capital and instead use only as much as is necessary to achieve near-term goals. A larger funding round of $300 million may be raised later this year if upcoming launches proceed as planned. So also very cool. And I can't wait to see a medium-class Firefly rocket, but that might be in five years. And finally, we have a little bit of sad news. Um, Geyer steps down as Johnson director. So unfortunately, um, Mark Geyer announced that he has been receiving treatment for cancer for the last year and that his doctors do not expect a quick resolution. Monday the 3rd, he announced that he will be stepping down from the position of director of JSC after three years. Deputy Director Vanessa White will be acting director for the time being. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections, and we have a comment that just happened here in, I guess, in real time, right? Yeah, right, right. The, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the comment happened in real time. Yeah. So Mike in the chat posted a link to video of Ingenuity's, uh, Flight 4. And the really cool thing is NASA not only published, the, but they already published the video. The cool thing here is that they published the audio. We were talking about this last week, um, and I was kind of hemming and hawing about like, what what is this going to sound like? Because like we know it's going to be quieter because there's less atmosphere, but like, does a different atmosphere composition change the the pitch? Does it change like the frequencies that are highlighted? Um, and I think we. We went back and forth for quite a while, and and David, I'm sure you cut most of it out. You said you kept some of it in there, right? I didn't listen to it last week. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I don't recall either, okay. but I think it's in there. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, so you can you can listen to it, and it's it's really cool. It's hard um, to differentiate the sounds because the sound of the wind uh, blowing across the mic and the sound of ingenuity, they they they're pretty much the same sound. Um, but, um, in this audio that was published, they dropped out, uh, frequencies or quieted down frequencies above and below, uh, the range uh, of the actual sound of the, of the rotors. And they also draw selectively cherry picked some frequencies to drop out to help make it clearer. It still doesn't sound like much. There'll be a link in the show notes. Um, you kind of have to watch it with the video because the, the feedback that you get seeing the drone, uh, move really helps you pick out the audio. Um, sorry if, uh, you can't see the video. By the way, if there's anybody who has, um, uh, accessibility issues with vision, let me know because I've been trying to do, 
um, descriptions of our photos in the show notes. And I don't know if it's helpful or uh, if there's a better way I could do it or, you know, I, I'd like to make the show more accessible. But anyway, as you watch, the, the helicopter lifts off. And when it gets to its hover position, you can hear the audio kind of tweak up and down as it's uh, maintaining its hover. Um, and then they say that if you listen closely as it moves, you can hear the Doppler effect. I wasn't able to pick that out, but it's really low. Uh, it's actually 84 Hertz. So I was totally baffled by this number. Um, but there was a group effort. Uh, Colin helped do some math and, uh, Dennis did like just threw it together to begin with. So here's how it works out. The helicopter blades are spinning at about 2,500 RPM. It's actually a little faster. So that results in 5,000 pulses per minute, um, because there are two blades. Actually, there are four blades, but they're spinning at the same speed. So I'd I don't think <laughs> that makes a difference. Uh, just results in maybe some, uh, um, some beat resonances. Um, but anyway, 5,000 beats per minute, which translates to 84, uh, hertz, uh, eight, uh, 84 pulses per second. And okay, cool. So like the math actually works. Uh, all that speculation when, if we really sat and thought about it, we could have gotten pretty close, I think. But yeah, do go check it out. It's, it's really just futuristic science nerdery i think that was a good uh comment burn to throw in there cool all right well let's do this week in space fight history um so once again no winners but we did have seven guesses it's just that they were all wrong which is a <laughs> and, record and of me, sorts so congratulations yeah so i i pulled up my little dashboard to look at all the guesses and seven guesses all guessing the wrong thing and and the same wrong thing uh, I, f I fell into a little five minute depression, uh, because I was sure that I had gotten the date wrong and that yeah. I, you know, let everybody down again. I'm a worthless podcaster. And, you know, <laughs> all those, uh, all those <laughs> nonsense things that run through your head. And then when I realized that I did indeed have the date correct, it wasn't the right range. I like double check the date with multiple sources. Uh, I'm on top of the world because I love when this happens. I love when I can give, uh, <laughs> a clue that Dennis guessed correctly and nobody else did like that's that's the sweet spot right there that means i did a good job okay so i read the clue last week david i'd really like to hear how you uh how you read this clue oh do you want do you want me to make the sound okay well the clue is balloon squeak but it's in um what do you call those uh little, asterisks. Little asterisks, so <laughs> yeah. which means that i'm supposed to go i feel like i have something around here they could actually make the sound but i guess i don't um you know a balloon squeak <laughs> i can't do a high pitch sound noise. at all you hear my voice <laughs> you're not gonna fall for uh, ben's trolling he da tried da <laughs> david's inability to squeak aside uh this week in space flight history is the 11th of May, 1963. It was uh, the collapse of an Atlas Agena D due to a depressurized tank while it was still on the launch pad. This is such a cool event for multiple reasons. So uh, I feel like we talk about it a lot, but I wasn't aware of all the little details. Um, like, I don't think I ever really realized what was on board. So on board was a spy satellite called Gambit. 
And this is actually the, the first Gambit. Well, it's more complicated than that. This, this was ahead of the first Gambit launch. I thought that it was a follow-on program to Corona, but they actually were concurrent for a little bit. Um, so it's a complement and then a follow-on to the Corona program. So it's uh, a film uh, uh, camera on a satellite that takes photos on film and then returns them to earth in a, uh, in a return canister that deploys a parachute and is snagged out of the air by a Chinook, uh, helicopter. And Gambit's actually, uh, very closely related to Corona. Uh, it used, uh, the same film return canister. Um, but unlike Corona, it has its own vehicle, I guess is the way you might want to put it. Um, whereas Corona was like built into uh, a Gina, uh, attached to a Gina. And like it gets worse because the first couple of gambits didn't separate from their Agena upper stages. Uh, so it, it, just, it gets worse and worse. But uh, all that to say, it's very similar to Corona. If you're thinking about Corona, you're thinking about uh, something very similar to Gambit. So it has uh, three different cameras. One is called the Strip Camera. Um, it has a steerable flat mirror uh, that reflects light into a stationary concave primary mirror. And then that reflects light back through a little hole in the flat mirror to a Ross corrector, which I don't know what it is. I'm assuming it's like for chromatic aberration or perspective or something like that. Um, and then after the Ross corrector, it goes into the camera and gets recorded on the film. And so the camera has got a slit aperture so that it can um, drag uh, film across the exposed portion and you can uh, record a strip of land as the earth rotates underneath you. Uh, the first couple of, uh, of gambits, actually the first two, which remained attached to the Agena upper stage, the Agena basically was able to point it straight down and that was it. Uh, later on, they were able to rotate, which means that the strip camera could do some kind of cool stuff like photographing, uh, the same, uh, point on the ground from multiple angles and, you know, all the, all the things that come along with that. I don't know how many of them they actually did. Uh, you know, it's a little hard to research spy satellites, uh, from the sixties, though they may be. Um, but the, uh, the strip camera had, uh, this aperture that allowed them to photograph 6.3 degrees, uh, worth of ground, uh, and then a long, strip. Um, and the first couple of missions, uh, they had a, a ground resolution of 1.2 meters. Um, by 1966, they had improved something in the camera mechanism, uh, and they were able to get a uh, an 0.6 meter resolution, which is pretty darn good even by today's standards. Then there were two other cameras. There was a Stellar camera, um, which used a Rousseau grid, which is like that grid of, of cross hatches that mean that the moon... Uh, the moon landing photos can't be real. Uh, you know that grid. Um, oh, and so that's yeah. pointed. <laughs> right. So Dennis, you, you, uh, you mentioned, you, you know what the Ross corrector is. Oh, I had to look it up. I didn't know that one off the top of my head, but, but you basically, I mean, you had it. Yeah, it, it corrects for a coma aberration specifically. And what's coma aberration? That concave primary is, uh, is a parabolic, uh, primary mirror. And, uh, if it works perfectly, all the incoming light rays, parallel light rays should converge at a single focal point, but any imperfections are going to cause them to not 
converge at that same focal point, and as a result, you get kind of a little bit of a coma or halo around what would otherwise be like mm. a point source. And, and so uh, Ross is the name of a, of a lens manufacturer, so I wonder if this was like their particular special sauce uh, corrector for for correcting that you could dial into that, you know, whatever's wrong with that particular lens. I don't, I don't know. So going back to the stellar camera, um, it's pointed uh, directly opposite of the strip camera, at, you know, looking up at the sky, as you might expect. And just capturing images of the stars uh, allow you to get um, a better idea of what you're actually looking at with the strip camera. Um, and then uh, there, there's a similar camera. Uh, it's called the index camera. It's a wider field of view than the strip camera. And the, the strip camera's field of view is like pretty much smack dab in the middle of the index camera. So it gives you context, but it also uh, allows you to really dial in exactly what the strip camera is imaging. And so that's, that's the camera optics module. It's, it's part of the vehicle. There's a second uh, module called the orbital control vehicle, the OCV. It's also called the, or it's, it's also where the recovery vehicle is. So up in the nose, uh, I believe now, now that I think about it, I, I was looking at diagrams and now I'm actually not sure which order they were in. Uh, but remember OCV, uh, because when, um, when we're talking about the, uh, the satellite remaining attached to the Agena upper stage, the OCV is like shut down. Um, and so that's why they couldn't do any of their more interesting pointing maneuvers. And, and it's interesting to me that when they're attached to the Agena upper stage, the Agena has no problem doing pointing with a payload attached, but the OCV uh, can't do pointing with an, an Agena attached. My guess is that it has to do with, um, just the, the masses involved, maybe also the control software, uh, the control hmm. mechanism. Let's <laughs> say, cause I'm not sure it was a, actually qualifies the software, uh, could, could handle it. <laughs> okay. So this mission, it took place, uh, at Vandenberg at SLC4W and um they were preparing for kh7-1 uh, i believe corona the corona program was kh1 or 2 um but the the kh keyhole missions were um you know this whole series of spy satellites kh701 or kh7-1 kh71 um once it was launched, spoiler alert, it gets launched. Once it gets launched, it, it gets named Mission uh, 4001, 4001, 4001. But yeah, so l let me just talk about Mission 4001 because uh, I, I was able to find uh, orbital dynamic or orbital parameters for it. So it went into a 95.4 degree inclination into a circular orbit, uh, 164 by 164 kilometers 164 that sounds like kilometers to me mm. got, i gotta write down units one of these days i'm gonna do it um <laughs> yeah it's kilometers so yeah uh a, a hundred and uh 64 kilometers uh is far lower than the iss uh which flies at 400 kilometers thank you anderson denova for that quick reference number um and you know these things are going to do orbit pretty quickly so it's it's okay that um, this thing is just uh barely scraping the troposphere so that that's the actual mission this wasn't that and for a long time we didn't know actually what was going on here um video had been released of this incident um but it wasn't until uh 
fairly recently that we were able to actually figure out exactly what mission it was. So here's what happened. Um, they're loading propellants and a, an air bubble formed in the locks line. And so they were able to detect the bubble and they stopped propellant loading right away. But for one reason or another, the fill drain valve was damaged. I don't know if it could have been avoided if they stopped earlier or maybe they stopped right as the bubble was in the valve and that did some damage. But O2 and the helium that pressurized the tank uh, started leaking out. And because Atlas uh, used uh, balloon tanks, they start to crumple and fall over, right? Um, so at first, it's just the O2 tank on top that crumples. Um, but then the RP1 tank underneath uh, has enough pressure put on it that it actually ruptures. So RP1 goes spraying everywhere. And you'd think that this is a recipe for disaster. Uh, and, you know, certainly this wasn't a good thing, but there was no explosion. Uh, there wasn't even a fire. Um, and I tend to think that this was um, just pure quick thinking and fast reflexes uh, on behalf of the launch team because they got fire suppression systems in, uh, up and running almost immediately, uh, spraying water everywhere. Uh, and uh, who, who knows, maybe there would have been an explosion if they hadn't have done that. And so, like I said, we, we had video of this, of this thing happening. What's really interesting is, uh, Joel Powell, um, who, uh, he was interviewed on the space show. He writes for, it might be space news. I could be wrong. Um, but anyway, uh, he was digging around in some old records and he found a list of five unflown Atlas D's. And four of them were listed as having been canceled, but one of them was listed as destroyed in an explosion. And I certainly wouldn't know this off the top of my head. I don't know if Joel did, uh, but he was able to determine, yeah, we don't know about any Atlas D explosions that could be this vehicle. Um, and so he wound up connecting it with this footage and goes, yeah, that seems about right. So then he turned around and started digging into um, all the Agenas that had been made. And none of the Agenas were unaccounted for. And none of the serial numbers were skipped. So either this was like a totally like unlicensed Agena with like the serial number uh, filed off or something. Uh, it seems much more <laughs> likely that it was just a dummy um, was installed. So the Agena was a dummy, but there was actually a gambit on board. Interestingly enough, it wasn't the gambit that wound up flying on uh, KH-71. It was some other vehicle. And I'm assuming that either the actual gambit that was supposed to fly was in transit or it was being integrated or they were having to do some sort of pre-flight prep on it um, that they wanted to do a full stack test, but they didn't want to load a payload on. Maybe that's why they didn't actually load a real Agena on. Maybe they didn't have any Agenas to hand. And so they ended up using, you know, some sort of fitment article or something. Um, but the gambit that was on board was smashed to tiny pieces, uh, according to, uh, an article on the space review. Um, but, uh, I don't think it was, I don't think it was that dramatic, um, because the, the payload fairing was intact. Um, but it, it sounds like we, 
we do know that the lenses were smashed. Um, so that, that vehicle is not going to space, but I, I think this whole, uh, little dance, uh, that we have to do to kind of qualify exactly what this was, uh, is really fascinating. Like it, yeah, it's this mission, but it's not actually this mission, but it was ahead of this mission, but it didn't actually affect the mission. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. So we know that the gambit that was destroyed wasn't the one that ended up flying because the one that ended up flying flew on the 12th of July. So, I mean, just th that's zero turnaround time for all intents and purposes, especially for classified payload, I, I, I would assume. So when the next uh, game or the, the next gambit, the first gambit flew, it, w it was the first gambit to fly. It was also the first Atlas uh, D launch ever. So j just kind of cool that these two firsts are paired up, but it it's no mistake. Up until this point, pretty much every vehicle that had flown, uh, every satellite that had flown had been flown on a custom tailored vehicle. Um, it, it was just the way that we did things. And, and it led to a lot of failures, right? Because if you're constantly tweaking your launch vehicle, you're not going to be able to to apply the same testing knowledge to it. Um, and so this happened right at the beginning of the era where we were, you know, standardizing our vehicles. So in fact, uh, an Atlas Agena D is really just an Atlas Agena B, but in a standard configuration. I think that's really nice. Uh, Anderson in the chat says, tell that to SpaceX Falcon 9. Yeah, except Falcon 9 adjusts its launch trajectory. They're not actually tweaking the vehicle itself. They're, they're loading the same amount of fuel into it one way or the other. So, uh, the aftermath. Yeah. They were able to, to fly their mission successfully. But for, for this vehicle, um, the lenses were smashed, but the payload fairing remained intact, which means that they didn't end up losing any, uh, you know, super secret, uh, knowledge. Nobody saw the vehicle who shouldn't have. The vehicle itself obviously, uh, was thrown in the nearest dumpster. Um, but the launch pad itself, right? This could have been a big explosion that did a lot of damage, but the launch pad was basically completely undamaged except for one steel beam that cracked due to cold stress. And it only took them two days to fix it. Uh, literally no other pad damage. This is one of those, uh, uh, successful failures, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I'm assuming that they, they took some knowledge away from this and learned, but you know, it, it didn't really affect anything down the line. Pretty darn cool. Okay. So, so Mike in the chat says, uh, that for a while, every Falcon 9 they launched was different. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, so up to block five, that, that seems like a pretty reasonable switch over. All right. Well, that is your this week in spaceflight history. Cool. Okay. So Dennis, let's see if you can do better. So this is what, how many shows running now? Um, what's our, we have like a, that was five, four in a row, I think. Four in a row. All right. Well, let's see if we can go for five. Uh, <laughs> stump the listeners. Okay. So do you have a clue for us for next week? Yeah. Going outside the box here. This is a very meta clue, even more so than, uh, <laughs> David's uh, uh, yeah. pun warning uh, two weeks ago, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> or no, last week. So next week in 1996, this week we deflated something, as in this week of the show. This week we deflated something. Next week, let's inflate something instead. Okay. So 
think about something inflating next week in 1996. <laughs> Hopefully someone will get this one. Uh, so if anyone out there thinks they know, and even if you really are not sure, just go ahead and tweet us anyway, because we're looking for a correct guest. Give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We have three of those, uh, three launches. So that's cool. I don't think we had any last week, or maybe we had one. So we're making up for it. Yeah, we didn't. We had we had launch adjacencies last week, I think. <laughs> so first up is an Electron flying the mission. <laughs> Boy, these mission names are fantastic. You remember uh, the Electron mission called Running Out of Fingers? Well, this is Running Out of Toes. It's the 20th launch. Um, so it makes sense. Uh, they're flying two uh, black sky uh, microsatellites, the Earth observation satellites. Um, and this is going to be really cool. They are going to be attempting to recover the first stage. Um, they're going to be deploying parachutes this time. Uh, very exciting. I love their uh, their recovery attempt missions. So Electron is going to be flying on Saturday the 15th. Uh, they have a fairly long launch window from uh 1000 hours UTC to 1205 hours UTC. And uh, that same day, later in the day, keep an eye out for a Falcon 9 Block 5 taking Starlink 26, which is, we all know that story, another batch of uh, Starlink satellites for the Mega Constellation. This is again on uh, Saturday, May 15th at 2258 UTC. Uh, flying out of the Cape at Launch Complex 39A, as usual. And then on the 17th, two days later, uh, we have an Atlas V in the 421 configuration, and that's launching Seabird's Geo 5. So yeah, that's a geosynchronous satellite, and it's the fifth one of the space-based infrared system program, so that's what Seabird's stands for. So this is launching on the 17th at 1735 UTC, and that's launching from Cape Canaveral from Space Launch Complex 41. So that's that. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Anyway, that let's deal with the show and we would like to thank ronald jinkies and tim dodd for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you so much to our five dollar and up patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at the orbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com. Alright, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.